Uh, and just before we sort of get into, into uh, the sermon here this morning, just a big thanks to everybody who's uh, reached out this week to say hello, uh, those of you that have been encouraging, uh, that have come alongside. It's really been appreciated by myself and our family uh, a lot. The staff here, as I'm sure you know, are uh, humble and hardworking and dedicated, and they've been incredible all week. Uh, and you have an unbelievably hardworking team of elders who really, really care about you and this church. And uh, they have come alongside this week, too, and just been huge for us. So uh, a big, big thank you to, you know, you guys and the staff that are in the room. And if you guys could just say thanks to your team, that would be awesome because they're, they're really great. So uh, let's pray here and then we'll get started into what we're talking about this week. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity that we have to freely worship and to serve and to learn. And I pray now that uh, as I speak out of your word, that it would be your words and your message, not mine. And that uh, everybody who's listening this morning would be able to have the opportunity to draw a little bit closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we uh, were talking about this event called the Jerusalem Council, and it's this event where uh, a bunch of the church leaders got together because they, they, they were encountering a bit of a problem. There was a barrier with some of the new Gentile believers, and they were trying to figure out how to bridge that gap, how to overcome that barrier. And so this week we're going to continue that story because last week we really only got halfway through, and this follow-up part is really, really important. So just for you and the context of this morning, I'm not going to run through the whole context like I did last week, but uh, just as a reminder, we're going to be reading out of the book of Acts this morning. Uh, Acts is uh, one of the books in the New Testament uh, written chronicling a lot of the things that happened while Jesus was here on earth and then afterwards in those first missionary journeys and a lot of the things that happened. And, and we'll get into those, of course, throughout the year. And what happened last time is that uh, there were a bunch of Gentile believers that wanted to get to know Jesus, but they were struggling with the Jewish culture, like very similar to today. We talked about that last week. We are in a time where culture is shifting very, very quickly, very fast. And when we look at, uh, you know, the advancement of digital media and the internet, especially over the course of the last few years, you think back to, it's not that long ago. So really, you go back to like 2007, that's when that first iPhone was released. That's really the first time where anybody had like quick internet in their pocket at the, you know, at the drop of a hat. Uh, and that was kind of the moment really where we didn't realize it, but culture was going to make a big shift. And so we are dealing sort of with this tension too, where we are all living in the same place, but culturally there are a lot of folks that are different. And so uh, they were living with this too, right? The Jews and the Gentiles, completely different cultures, uh, different upbringings, different beliefs, different experiences. Uh, but now these Gentiles are saying, well, we'd like to get to know Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem uh, to meet with the elders because there was this barrier that they had come up with, this uh, cultural barrier that was saying, you know, you had to do X, Y, and Z before you could be in relationship with Jesus. And the Gentiles were sort of struggling with some of those cultural things. And so James, the brother of Jesus, at some point during that council meeting said, we really shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are attempting to turn to Jesus. We shouldn't make it hard for people to get to know Jesus. That's one of the big things that we talked about last week. And so this is sort of the follow-up to that meeting. And I like to do this every once in a while. 
Um, I know that you know, some of you might have been up late last night, I don't know, watching hockey or football or doing work, or maybe you did a, light, a night shift, and you went, you know what, church is really important, and I'm going to come here anyway, but you know, once I get through that worship set, that first five or ten minutes of the sermon, I think I'm going to be toast. So I'm just going to give you the bottom line this morning right out of the gate. And if you want to like zone out for the whole rest of it, as long as you walk away with this, uh, to a degree, you're going to be able to talk about you know, something that you learned about this morning. So here's the bottom line right out of the gate this morning. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. The message you're sending isn't true unless you actually follow through. The message you're sending isn't true unless you actually follow through. Now, if you're a parent... Uh, you would know that if you have kids and you say, hey, go clean your room, and your kids go, I'm going to clean it. I'm going to clean it. Have you ever said, oh, they're gone? Have you ever said you're going to clean your room and then not? Or have you ever said you're going to do something at work and then you haven't? Or have you ever said something to your spouse or your whomever, your friends, your family, you said you were going to do something, you said you believed in something, but then you didn't follow through on the actions? And what are those people left to think? They're left to think, well, it's really nice that they said that. It's a really nice thought but because they didn't really follow it up with any action, they didn't do anything about it, I'm not really sure whether or not they really believe in what they said. And so I think in the wisdom of the Jerusalem Council, to a degree, they understood this as well. They knew that just because they had made a couple of decisions that were going to open the door for Gentiles to get to know Jesus a little better, that still didn't mean their job was done. It wasn't open the door and and that's it, we're going to walk away. They understood that if they felt that something was important, if they felt the Gentiles getting to know Jesus was really important, that there were some action steps that they needed to take. So we're just going to continue from last week. Last week we started in Acts chapter 15 at the beginning, and here we're going to continue starting in verse 22. So here we go. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, which is a big deal, when you have the consent of the whole church on anything, that's pretty cool. Decided to choose men from among their members and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. So, as we've said, the council is over. They've drafted this letter, and now they're sending Paul and Barnabas back to the Gentiles to report. But here is something really, really cool that's happened they're not going alone. They're not going by themselves. Paul and Barnabas aren't the only ones that are headed back to talk to the Gentiles. The church is sending, uh, sending in the troops. They're sending in support. They're sending in backup. Whatever bad analogy that I'm trying to come up with that you want to hear, that's what they're doing. They're sending people with them to make sure that, that they're just not going by themselves. And why, you know, is this important? Well, we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. Here goes the letter. Here's where it starts. To the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch, greetings, since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instruction from us, have said things to disturb you and unsettle your mind. So this first part of the letter, they say, hey, remember all of those things that you were hearing from those certain people, from those teachers of the law, from those Pharisees? We want you to know that those instructions weren't coming from this group of people. That's really important to us. That didn't come from us. And we know that it's caused a problem. And so here's what we're going to do to try to help you get through it. The letter continues. It says, we've decided unanimously, again, I just love that, to choose representatives to send them to you, 
along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So it says, what you're reading here is something that we've all come up together. You know, you've all been in a board meeting or a work meeting or, uh, you know, something in your life where there's, you've been in a team, you've been in a group, maybe there's been a group of four of you or five of you, and you all sort of decided on something, but then when you see that executive summary or that readout, it just, it isn't the same as what you thought. It's not everybody's on the same page. One person kind of came in and interjected a lot of their own things, and you end up looking at that email or you're looking at that report, and you go, gosh, I don't think that's what we agreed on. But very clearly here in this letter to the Gentiles, what they're saying is we're all on the same page with this one. So you better believe that. And just to show you how serious we are about making sure this message comes in clearly, we're sending back the guys you know, but we're also sending back some pretty heavy hitters in our church, some big leaders, people that are known. And I can go into the history of Silas uh, and Judas. By the way, if you're new to church, a different Judas, uh, just to make sure we're clarifying that. But, you know, they're, you know they've got a history, and, and we can talk about them too, but the important part is to know is that they're a big deal within that council, and they're sending them along. They're saying, we're going to, and they're doing that to make sure the Gentiles are supported and also to make sure that those in the Gentile culture of different religions don't come in and go, hey, you guys are forging this thing. They want to make sure that they can authenticate this letter. So they're sending in the support to make sure that that happens. The letter continues. For it has seemed good to you to the Holy Spirit. Sorry. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. And we touched on these a little bit last week. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So what's happening here is the, the council is basically saying, we believe we've heard God's voice on this matter and we've found unity in the spirit. And uh, you guys were talking about how important unity was a couple of weeks ago and we look all the way back to see this council saying, we are unified and we believe that is important and we want you to know that as well. And so then this other thing happens. They, they send this short list of rules. Remember, there are 613 laws that Jews are supposed to follow, but one of the things that have happened here is the council has said, well, we're not expecting you to, to carry that yoke, to carry all 613 of these laws, especially since you didn't grow up in our culture. So we're going to pick a couple that we would like you to follow. And the brilliance of this is they don't just pick and choose the ones that they like. They actually pick and choose ones that are impactful, that mean something, that make a difference. And sometimes in church we can feel like we look at some rules and we look at some laws and they feel controlling, right? This is one of the things that the culture feel like people that are outside of our faith that aren't really sure what it's like to be a Christian or sometimes can get the wrong impression of what it's like. They kind of look at rules and they look at laws and they go, you're just trying to control people. You're just trying to control how people think. You're just trying to guide their steps so that they don't have any freedom. And that's, of course, we know not what God's laws are here for at all. And so what the council does here is they say, we're going to pick a few that really matter, that make a difference. And so here are the ones that they choose. 
I think you can throw them up there. They choose three. They choose one that is uh, to abstain from food sacrificed by idols, from the blood of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality and fornication. Now, I don't know. I haven't been here long enough. I, every once in a while, like to engage, and so you can feel the need to shout out at me if you'd like to, although if you don't want to, that's fine. You don't have to. Does anybody know what the common theme about these three things are? Can anybody guess a common theme, a common a spot between all three of these different laws? Any ideas? Okay. Here's what it is. It's paganism. That's the big theme here. It's cultural, which is really interesting, right? Um, blood here is a pagan delicacy. And the council knows that. They know that blood and using it in different ways is a pagan delicacy. And so they say, what we would like you to do is abstain from that. The blood from strangled animals. So this means a couple of things. One of the big ones is that, is that at pagan temples, at pagan altars, what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal, a burnt offering, but then they would take that animal and they would take it off the altar and they would eat it. And people would do this all the time. And then the third one, sexual immorality or fornication. In this context, one of the largest places that you would find a sexual immorality or prostitution was the pagan temple. And so what the council is saying is we would like you to abstain from these three things. And it's not a meaningless ask. It's a huge ask because here's what it does. And I put this up on the screen for you because it can be a little bit confusing. Removing the need for circumcision and some of the other laws, like we talked about last week, eliminated a barrier between the Gentiles and the Jewish or the Christian church. And these new, they're not really new, but these new requirements strengthened the barrier between the Gentile church and paganism. So what the council does is they hit it on both sides. The first thing they say is, we understand that there's a barrier between you and Jesus. We're going to break that barrier down. That's important. But then what we're going to do is we're going to say, we know that as Christ followers, we're called to be different. We're called to stand out in our workplace, in our lives, in our culture, to our kids. We know we're supposed to stand out. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give you a couple of these laws that are going to help you stand out from your culture. Because when you stop participating in these three actions, the group of people around you that have seen you do that for your whole life, they're going to notice. And they're going to say, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing that anymore? And all of a sudden now you have an on-ramp to talk about this new faith and you have the ability to separate yourself from what you were and draw yourself closer to Jesus and what he's turning you into. Very cool, very smart. It continues. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. So what happened? Well, the Gentiles are thrilled. They're excited. We have a compromise. We're trying to teach Waverly, our three-year-old, what compromises are right now. Have any of you had three-year-olds? That's a hard job. <laughs> Honey, if we do this and you do this, that's a compromise. But I want the whole thing. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think adults are like that too. Let's get real. But, um, you know... <laughs> Right? They've got a compromise that they're really excited about. They're thrilled about it. And the church leaders not only came and delivered the letter, but they actually stuck around. 
They stuck around to teach. They stuck around to encourage. They didn't do the obligatory thing. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you know that the only reason somebody came, introduced themselves to you, did two seconds of small talk and left is because they had to. And you went and you went, well, I mean, thanks. It didn't really mean anything because you were forced to do it. But thanks for doing that. These guys wanted to make sure that wasn't the case. They stuck around to encourage and to build into this new uh, group of Jesus followers made out of the Gentiles. Very cool. So here's a couple of things that I want you to take away from this scripture this morning. And then we're going to get into, uh, in a second, sort of some practical applications. How can we take this and turn it into something we're doing day to day? So the first thing is uh, that I love, and we just talked about, the, the church sent more than just Paul and Barnabas. They sent more than the people who were assigned. We can all do that, right? We say that in the church all the time. You know, the youth look after the youth, and the kids look after the kids, and the pastoral care team looks after pastoral care. And you have all these little different things that are siloed, and we don't always do a lot of crossover. And in the moments we do crossover, you'll find, especially in ministry, are really, really impactful moments. I remember moments that uh, a senior pastor would come in and talk to us for a night, and those were impactful moments because it felt like we were getting something special. When in reality, we should probably just be working together like that a little bit more often. And I love how they did that. They said, we're not just sending the people who are supposed to go. We're sending the rest of the church too because this is important work. The second point here is that the church admitted to the degree to which they made one. They made a mistake and they took steps to make it right. Now again, as the church, I think this is something we could learn to do just a little better. Sometimes the church can go into self-preservation mode. We all do this, right? You get stuck with your hand in the cookie jar and you go, well, that's not my hand. I'm the one, I'm, I was getting it for somebody else or whatever. I think every once in a while, we would do well to just sit back and go, you know what? We blew that one and we're really sorry. And here's what we're going to do to make it better. When is the last time that you had a conversation where somebody got upset with you and you led with sorry and that didn't immediately de-escalate de that conversation? <laughs> right? People go, oh, you're sorry. Well, I was going to yell at you more, but now maybe we'll have a conversation about it instead. If the church just jumped on that a little bit more, I think we would be good for it. And I love that they did that here. And the third one is the church found a way to let go of their tradition while holding on to their integrity. And that's a hard one. That's hard for all of us because we all love certain things about the church experience in our history, in our past. And most certainly, the Jews had a huge history of doing things a certain way, but they said, you know what? At the end of the day, getting people in relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. And so if we need to set aside a couple of the things that we like or felt like were important or things that we felt called to at a time so that we can move forward and make sure that people are getting to know Jesus, that's something that we're going to do. I really liked how they did that too. And I think they did a lot of those things because in a certain way, although maybe not in a way that rhymes, they were thinking that the message that they were sending wouldn't be true unless they actually followed through. It would have been really easy for the council to sit around to make this decision and then go, done, great job guys, we did awesome, let's head to the bath. Instead they went, no, 
We're going to take action. We're going to do something about this because this really, really means something. So how do we do this? How do we follow through? How do we make sure that when we say we believe in certain things, that we think things are really important, we actually take that next step to make sure that we follow through as well? I've got a couple of ideas for you this morning, obviously, because if I didn't, I probably wouldn't be doing my job. Here's the first one. I just want to talk a little bit about kids and youth for a minute. Intergenerational relationships. Uh, I, there's this book called Sticky Faith. If you're a parent or a grandparent and you have kids that are growing up that you hope uh, their faith sustains past that certain point, right? Lauren and I uh, were looking at some more stats and, and having some conversations this week. And uh, we, you know, I've read before this idea, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's in this book, uh, that you know, those first two weeks when you transition out of high school and into university, that's where like 50% of people drop off in faith practice in those first two weeks. I was watching um, some, uh, some information from a guy named Brady Shearer this week who was talking about how really it's those first 48 hours, 72 hours in your, in your university experience that are going to shape how you bring your faith practices through the whole thing, right? So you do family ministry, we do kids ministry. Could you imagine investing all of this time into a student's faith, and in 72 hours, it kind of being gone. <laughs> so if you're a person who wants to make sure that doesn't happen, a great book to pick up is that Sticky Faith book. I would really suggest that. And one of the big points in that book that it says is uh, this idea of a five-to-one ratio when it comes to students and building their faith. So when we, we have a safety team, right? You, you do uh, ratios in, in, your, in the nursery, in the student ministry, Right, so, it, okay, I'm going to try to do these by memory. With babies, it's like three to one. Is that right? Three adults for every one baby. And then the next age group is like five to one. And then maybe youth is ten to one. So for every ten youth, you have one adult. And that's to keep them safe and make sure. When we're talking about faith formation, we need to flip that around. We need to say for every one kid, one student, one college age, they need to have five people that aren't a family member engaging in their life, building into their faith. If you're a person that's sitting here this morning going, we really care about the kids and the future of our church. We really care that the, the kids that are growing up in our midst grow up to be people who not only follow Christ but become people who can teach the name of Jesus later in their life. Then I would challenge you, which one of them are you building into? And that doesn't mean you need to necessarily volunteer in a ministry, although we're going to get to that in a second. That just means... You're all friends here, or a lot of you are. You have relationships. Can you go to a set of parents today and go, hey, can I just check in with your kid once a month and see how they're doing? Can you walk up to somebody in service after and just say, hey, how was that? How are you doing? Did you pray this week? Did you whatever, whatever that looks like. Because if every kid has five people that aren't their parents building into their faith, it makes a huge difference, not only in their faith development, but their inability to have their faith stick right? And in the same way that we just talked about, who is assigned to your kids? The parents are, sometimes the grandparents or a guardian or whomever. But most of you aren't assigned to the, one of the kids that are sitting in this room. But that doesn't matter, does it? That doesn't matter for your ability to grow and help somebody's faith develop. Just a thought. Here's another thing that book talks about. It says that many people see faith like a jacket, something that they can put on or take off based on their behavior. 
seek to help those around you to, to develop uh, in a more robust understanding of the gospel, one that integrates faith in all aspects of life. We all struggle with this. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I was a, a child of divorce, and so um, one of the things that my dad always tried to teach me to do is no matter where I went, to be one person, to not be one person at school and one person at my mom's and one person at my dad's and one person at my, or, uh, you know, one person at my church, to not have all these multiple personalities, to, but, but to be one person the whole way through. And as a kid, that's really difficult when you're trying to please everybody, I think. But as adults, we sort of deal with that too. We morph who we are and how we act depending on the scenario and the situation that we're in. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's the things that you talk about. Maybe it's the language you use. It's the stuff that you let slip. I'm not really sure. But the challenge in this is if you really think that this is important, right? If what you're saying isn't true unless you actually follow through. If you're going to sit in your home and you're going to say, following Jesus day by day is really important to me, then it's really important that you do it not just in your home, but you do it at work and at church and at hockey and in a work setting and in a social setting. Can you make your faith a little bit more consistent? Because that not only helps your faith grow, but it also helps the people around you see that something is different in you, just like those laws did for the Gentiles separating themselves from the pagan church. Three, here's something interesting. Uh, we need to create a safe place for doubt and faith insecurity. Doubt isn't toxic to faith. I think a lot of you will notice this. Silence is toxic to faith especially young people, but all of us want conversations in response to their hardest questions. They don't just want answers. They want conversation. Nobody wants to just be told everything all the time. Sometimes you just need to be able to talk it out. Can you, instead of approaching folks in a way that says, oh, you should think this right away, think, what made you think that? It's really important to me that you get from A to B, and if that journey isn't as linear as I'd like it to be, that's okay, because the important part is, is that you get to know Jesus a little better. Can you be a safe place for doubt for somebody? And here's the last one. Can you get involved here? And again, I'm fresh. I'm new. If I had been guest speaking this sermon in somewhere else, I would have chosen the church, I would have talked to somebody in ministry, and I would have said the same thing. So I'm not, like, I don't have some like, secret information that I learned in the office this week. This is just a general thought. But if you're passionate about a subject and you sit on the sidelines and only talk about how important it is, is it really that important to you? We do this in, you know, again, kids' ministry, youth ministry pastoral care, worship. Worship's really important to me. The, the style is really important. The, the this, the that, whatever. When's the last time you called somebody that was leading worship and said, man, I really appreciate that you led worship this week? That was really impactful for me. It really helped me draw closer to God, and I really appreciate that. Just because you don't play guitar doesn't mean you can't invest in it. You just invest in the people that are there. There are always ways to get involved and say, I'm following through on the thing that I believe is important. I'm going to um, pick on, bump, prop up, boost, whomever, uh, Christine this morning a little bit, because kids' ministry is one of these areas that we say that all the time. And again, I would say this anywhere. 
and I don't have some kind of secret inside knowledge of what's going on. But we say this a lot about kids' ministry. Oh, the children are the future of the church. They're so important to us. But a kids' ministry isn't for me. <laughs> that's for somebody else. It's really important, but, but that's for somebody else. My challenge to you is can you find a way to somehow get involved? Maybe it's not getting a dodgeball thrown at you every week, which is fun. But maybe it's reaching out to those that you know are volunteering in kids ministry and saying that work that you're doing is so important. Is there something I can do to boost you on the back end? I know as a person who's been staff member at church for, you know, again, since I was 18, I still have a box of encouragement letters that I got in 2007 and 2009 and 2011 and all the way through. Those aren't things that ministry leaders get rid of. Because I'll tell you, when we sit in our office and we have a bad day, to pull out one of those encouragement letters and go, what I'm doing matters, that's a big deal. Can you boost one of the staff this week? Can you reach out and say, what you're doing is making... A difference, And I know I'm not answering the phones and I'm not planning the Bible study and I'm not getting the dodgeballs thrown at me, but I want to do something to make sure that just the people that are assigned to the kids, that are assigned to the life groups, that those people feel supported because it's important to me that everybody gets an opportunity to know Jesus. That's why I love this story. I love the wisdom of the council. I love how they brought it all the way through. They brought it from problem to solution to action. And sometimes we get stuck in steps two and three. And my challenge to you this morning would just be, what's God putting on your heart? And if you're feeling something right now, that's not me being a compelling speaker, because I'm really not. That's the Holy Spirit saying, hey... Remember that thing? Maybe it's time. Because the message you're sending isn't true unless you actually follow through. I'm going to call the worship team back up. We're going to pray and we're going to sing a little bit more this morning. But I would challenge you to think about that today. And as you go through your week, how can we take action steps, not just to grow our faith, but to make sure the people around us have an opportunity to grow theirs as well? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much. Uh, not only for the opportunity that we have to serve, but for the responsibility that it is to serve. Thank you for trusting us here on earth 2,000 years later with your word so that we could take it, so that we could read it, so we could learn from you, we could learn from the Holy Spirit, and then we could go out and make your name known to the nations, to the cultures, to the neighborhoods around us. And Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts today and call us to do that too. Call us to be people that believe that your message is so important that we would run through a wall to make sure our next door neighbor heard about it. Lord, I pray a blessing and safety and wisdom on everybody that's here and online and if their homes that might not engage this morning, that you would put on their hearts a calling to follow you deeply. In Jesus' name.